0: Hello everyone and welcome to Shot Reverse Shot, I'm Matt Risby, alright, and uh, joining me as always via the miracle of satellite technology, unwittingly he trained a dolphin to kill the President of the United States, (laughs) it's Ed Davis, how the devil are you sir?
1: I'm doing very well. I, I believe that is the tagline for The Day of the Dolphin. Yes,
0: it is correct. I've been holding off putting that one in, because that is obviously, so obviously, the greatest tagline of all time for a film that, uh, I mean, I've not seen it, but it looks like it's a serious film. And it's got George C. Scott in it.
1: Yeah, and directed by Mike Nichols. Uh, wow. Just on, at the at, uh, I believe in the middle of that run, that has him doing, like, the graduate carnal knowledge Catch 22 and then he does uh, Day of the Dolphin Dolphin, a film that was at one point going to be directed by Roman Polanski until tragic events uh, overtook it not a very good film it's very very strange
0: Mm. maybe he signed up for it thinking it was going to be like an adaptation of Day of the Locust or something Um,
1: It it definitely feels like something that should be a lot kind of pulpier than it is but everyone yeah like George C. Scott isn't exactly known for being light hearted no he brings a level of intensity to it that isn't quite warranted by the story <laughs> and the material.
0: Yeah, what does the dolphin bring to it?
1: It looks pretty good on camera. Right. And you believe that it's a dolphin.
0: Mm, yeah, yeah. No, it's not a dude in a suit, is it?
1: No, it's it's definitely dolphins kind of spinning around and sort of being pointed in direction of boats that are going to blow up.
0: Mm, fair. Okay, I'll accept it. And uh, if anyone out there has seen it, good luck to you. Because it sounds... I mean, I, I assumed it was a joke film that would be made up. But no, if it's real, it's real. I believe it. News this week. There's quite a lot. I'm going to start by talking about um, Netflix. Those kind folks who deliver content to your uh, telly box. Streaming people, aren't they? That's what they do. They've announced this week two things uh, are going to be coming back. We've got Wet Hot American Summer is going to get a sequel. Which is kind of great news because we love that, don't we, Ed?
1: Yeah, the the first mini series they did, first day of camp, was great, and it was lovely seeing the that amazing cast reunited. Even if uh, some of them felt very disconnected from the rest of the cast because they clearly were there for an afternoon, mm. uh, because they were too busy being nominated for multiple Oscars. Um, but yeah, it was great seeing that uh, the the Wayne and Showalter sensibilities stretched out over ten episodes and watching them take the idea of a prequel and pushing it to kind of the most illogical extremes, such as deciding they're going to explain why a can of beans can talk.
0: Mm. Yeah, yeah. It was kind of brilliant to see people who are 10 years older trying to play people who were 10 years younger than a film they made 10 years ago. Mm. So it's going to be interesting to see because they're now what, 10 years in the future of 10 years ago, 10 years ago. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, they'll have a kind of a lot of fun with that. But yeah, it's Netflix have also announced that they're going to uh, ruin a whole generation of childhoods again with uh, a new version of Watership Down.
1: Yeah, ready to traumatise little children who think, oh yay, something about rabbits.
0: Mm. Oh no, oh no. And I think instead of getting Paul Simon in to sing Bright Eyes, who was it? Paul Simon? Uh no, Art, Gar- Art Garfunkel. I always 50% views. chance. Yeah, and I blew it. They should get bright eyes in, do you know what I mean? Because he's relevant to the kids, <laughs> probably.
1: Well, he's relevant He's relevant to their parents at this point.
0: Yeah, that's a depressing depressing thought. But yeah, I mean, that's a, a thing for Netflix to do. That's, they're kind of cramming content in. But the, one of the more exciting things that they're going to do is there's something that started as an April Fool's joke and is now kind of looks like it might be in talks to happen, which is a sequel to Dread.
1: Yes, that is potentially very, very exciting as long as they get all of the kind of the key figures on board, because I really very much enjoyed Dread. I thought that was a really good translation of the style of the 2000 AD comics, if not necessarily their tone, Mm. because there wasn't a huge amount of uh, dark satire in it as there is in the books, but if they were to do a sequel film or, even, or a sequel TV series uh hopefully they could bring more of those aspects in cuz like the sense i got from interviews with like alex garland at the time was they kind of hoped to bring more in that's why they had that very simplistic plot you know of, of them being trapped in a tower block as the initial offering because it was an, a nice easy way into the world and then they could have become more complicated in future installments so uh, here's hoping something comes of that because I think Netflix would be a pretty good place for a dread uh, continuation.
0: Mm, it certainly would, and yeah, certainly a damn sight better than the uh, Sylvester Stallone, uh, Armand Asante version from the nineties. Well. Holy shit! Because oh yeah, that was the thing because obviously he's quite dour, isn't he? Uh, Judge Dread, a little bit on the serious side, a bit intense. So why not give him a comedy psychic?
1: Yeah, my my concern would be that they would try and fold this into Adam Sandler's Netflix deal, and so he would become the comedy sidekick because it would be the only way they could guarantee it getting made.
0: Mm. As long as in the opening scene he was like similarly executed uh, at <laughs> point-blank uh, point range, I think none of us would have a problem with that.
1: Or thrown from a plane like Steven Seagal in Executive Decision.
0: Mm. Well, he was trying to save... Like many lives, and uh, I mean, do do you ever do you remember like the urban legend that was about that in the original script? And I think there is some evidence about this up. He was supposed to live, but he pissed off the crew so much <laughs> that they just wrote him out of it and <laughs> killed him off.
1: I I have definitely heard that people really didn't like him, and that's the main reason why I kind of felt, even though he's a good character in that, I kind of didn't feel too bad about him dying because he does seem to be just a, a raging asshole.
0: Mm, yeah, give me Kurt Russell. Any day. Interesting casting news given the uh, announcement this week of uh, they're making a, a kind of Jack Ryan spin-off because uh, the Chris Pine failure uh, from the film last year, was it called Shadow Recruit or two years ago, um, yeah. has not been enough to deter people away from the fact that no one really cares about Jack Ryan anymore, but they're doing, is it a TV show? Yeah, a TV show
1: on Amazon, their streaming service. It's been announced and it's going to star... John Krasinski, uh, TV's Jim from the Office, as Jack Ryan.
0: Hmm. He really is trying to get his money's worth out of that six-pack, isn't he?
1: Yeah, and it's produced. It's going to be produced by Michael Bay's company. So clearly, his time on that Benghazi movie that everyone has already forgotten about mm-hmm. has kind of paid off in that he's being able to transition somewhat into a a action hero mode. But uh, I thought it was just funny because if you're charting his career in comparison to Martin Freeman's, uh, you know, in terms of playing essentially the same character on different iterations of The Office, it's kind of an- uh, analogous to him being, to, to Martin Freeman being cast as Bilbo Baggins.
0: Mm, yeah. And if we're going to draw any further analogies, if we're going to kind of, the parallels going to continue, then uh, the Jack Ryan thing will be terrible, but John Krasinski <laughs> will be great in it.
1: Yeah, I think that seems to be almost certain at this point, because... Uh, You know, like the Jack Ryan movies in the 90s were a lot of fun. These ones don't seem to be based on those in any way. Uh, And also it does have the Michael Bay stamp of approval, which is always uh, a reason to be wary of anything.
0: Mm. And if it's a Michael Bay, it will be a repeated stamp, Uh, a repeated, (laughs) angry, unsubtle stamp. So yeah, Every
1: different angle in coverage.
0: Yeah, and some of it in slow motion um, Mm -hmm. for no reason. Moving on, there's Trouble at Mill, Uh, DC, isn't there? A little bit of kind of directorial disagreements, it looks like.
1: Yes. uh, Seth Graham Smith, who is not a director and has only previously written the books and screenplays for very unsuccessful films, namely Abraham Lincoln, Vampire Hunter and Dark Shadows, was picked to direct The Flash. Mm. And someone at DC slash Warner Brothers clearly realized it'd be a terrible idea to hand a a, TV, a, a kind of big part of their cinematic universe to someone who has never directed anything before, and he's been kicked out. But also James Wan, who is someone who's directed a bunch of films, uh, uh, which have pretty much all been uh, fairly successful, most notably Furious 7, which made like more than a billion dollars, is mm-hmm. apparently going to step away from Aquaman because he is not enjoying it, and obviously because he can't get Vinny Chase, but he's also apparently not enjoying it... Too much. The yeah. demands of the studio upon him.
0: Right. Okay. I wonder what those demands are. Like, what what could possibly be worse than having to work on a film called Aquaman?
1: Well, supposedly, and um, this is mainly based on a story from uh, Birth Movies Death, Birth Death Movies, whichever that, whatever, Badass Digest is now called, where they've essentially saying that everyone at Warner Brothers is now very very worried because. Batman versus Superman was uh, basically a hugely successful failure. It was a film that made quite a lot of money. It's getting near 900 million worldwide at the time of recording, but it's also meant to be the launching pad for their entire slate of films. It They were hoping it would make at least like a billion, a billion one, and it has not come anywhere near that. It's widely hated by mm-hmm. fans and critics alike. And so they're now you know, there's talk of them reshooting big parts of Suicide Squad and they apparently have been trying to uh, steer Justice League in a new direction even though it's already started shooting. And I think the uncertainty and the constant kind of back and forth may be wearing a little thin on someone like James Wan who arguably doesn't need Aquaman at this point in his career because he's already got like a couple of his own franchises that he could dip back into.
0: Mm. yeah. Yeah, I, I, I have to say that like even for someone such as me who uh, doesn't hugely enjoy superhero movies, especially the ones of the kind of brown DC variety, I just I just don't really like kind of find anything appealing about any of the characters that aren't Batman. Like they don't seem like A- I mean I don't even know who Aquaman is. He just lives underwater. Is that his thing?
1: Uh pretty much lives underwater. Can talk to fish. He's. <laughs> Uh, yeah, the, the the problem with DC, I think, is that uh, the characters as originally conceived are they're quite they don't have a huge amount of conflict between them they don't have a lot of kind of inner life and some writers have been able to overturn that most of, but really Batman is the only character who over time that's kind of been baked in that he has this kind of tragic backstory that drives him and that makes him kind of an interesting character everyone else is a little plainer and I think. Mm. That's, one of that, that's the reason why Marvel Overtook DC for such a huge amount of time In the actual comics world Because they had all of these characters Who were just kind of uh, roiling bags of, bags of emotion Who were constantly fighting each other And the DC characters all just kind of got along mm. uh, And that makes it difficult To make those characters interesting To a new audience Because they don't really think of them as Characters that have depth and complexity And flaws that are interesting to explore
0: mm. but They can talk to fish
1: yeah, they can talk to fish. Uh, they're weak when it comes to yellow. Mm. Um, yeah, they, they, there's not a huge amount of. Uh, it's not. It's not a particularly deep bench in some respects.
0: No, no. If Aquaman doesn't include the line down where it's wetter, yes, it is better. <laughs> take it from me. Then I'm not going to watch it.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's there's too few, uh, wise cracking crabs in the DC films so far.
0: Mm. Wisecracking Crabs is a great name for a band by the way (laughs) like a kind of a blues combo uh I'm up for that if anyone else is as a spin-off from this show um (laughs) the popular website IndieWire is sadly leaving us isn't it
1: yeah IndieWire for people who are kind of unfamiliar is is kind of a a network of of disparate blogs including things like Shadow and Act and the playlist, the playlist is kind of spinning off into its own thing. It's going to be its own website starting in the next couple of months. But they've uh, essentially provided a a resource for film critics and also film fans to get their news and analysis on all these things from lots of dis- different perspectives. Uh, and IndieWire itself has been purchased by new owners who are deciding to uh, shutter the, the blog network. And I'm not sure what their plans are for the site itself, but it definitely seems like it's no longer going to be this great uh great resource that it has been and it's it's very sad because a lot of really great writers have written for IndieWire over the years and have gone on to do kind of great work in other places and it was a great launching pad for kind of young critics to get their name out there so it's incredibly sad to see it go particularly again because it's the the writers also tended to focus on smaller independent films and when a resource that focuses on that, similar to when the dissolve closed, it's always a shame that the champions of smaller films that don't cost hundreds of millions of do- dollars to produce and market uh, start disappearing.
0: Mm. Is we mentioned the dissolve there, and you know this is the second time we've had this conversation in in a, in a kind of a short period. Does it appear to? Oh, sorry, does the the writing appear to be on the wall for kind of niche film criticism? Uh, online
1: i think it may be on the wall for niche film criticism that is unprepared to be sublimated into kind of discussion of kind of broader works like i feel like the the aforementioned birth death movies has kind of a nice balance there because it does focus on lots of different kinds of movies but it will also write about dc you know uh, director changes and things like that and I think that if you're willing to make the trade off that you know that a news story about like Marvel casting will get a million hits, and an appreciation of like a noir film from the 1930s will get 10 hits, uh, then that's that you know that's I think probably the trade off that you have to make to kind of feel good about it. But the problem is that uh, at a certain point, someone in charge is going to say, "Well, why should we write about the thing that's only getting 10 hits?" Mm. Uh, and it then just becomes about chasing the thing that gets you the most attention. So, the end of kind of boutique f- uh, websites focused on smaller indie things definitely seems like a a sad thing. Though, will eventually it'll just be a case for kind of independent hobbyists to try and get the word out about smaller films.
0: Mm. What a uh, what an end game that's going to be. I'm not looking forward to that. To be perfectly honest, because there's too many good writers out there who are kind of struggling to find homes. In a bit of good news, exciting news to uh, end off the uh, the news segment this week. There's a new streaming service coming from two pretty decent sources. One of them being the Criterion Collection, the other being Turner Classic Movies. Now, must stress. Uh, it's the American turn of classic movies and not the British one, which is home to not-classic movies, as we've discussed many times. Uh, this is pretty exciting. And what's it going to be called? It's going to be called
1: Filmstruck, and it is going to offer up the Criterion Collection's online streaming library, which currently is housed at Hulu and will be leaving Hulu and therefore making it harder for me to justify having a Hulu subscription <laughs> anymore, because that was kind of the thing I used it for, was just kind of watching all of these uh these are criterion movies that have never received a dvd release but it's also going to have films from the tcm archive which is you know as extensive but also less niche you know it's going to have uh, a a great mix of all of the great independent foreign language films that have made up criterion's uh back catalogue for years and tcm's focus on kind of a classic film in general
0: mm. Is there probably Criterion DVDs just launched in Britain, hasn't it? Or kind of region two, as it were. It, is that true? Have I just made that up?
1: Oh, no, yeah. They just released a couple of titles. I think they released, um, I think it started with like Tootsie and it happened one night in a few hours. Ah,
0: cool. So is this streaming thing going to be uh, multi-regional?
1: Currently, it's only in the US and there's no talk as yet of it being elsewhere. But I imagine if it's successful over here, they may try and look into expanding and trying to become more global. But I think as most streaming services has found, it's it, the, the rights issues start to get very, very complicated if you look beyond the borders of a single country.
0: Yeah, yeah. I think it's it's one of those things, isn't it, that like new films that when they come out, unless they're kind of owned by a Netflix or an Amazon or whatever, they're going to try and get their stuff on as many sites as possible. And that the old model of territories and stuff is slowly gonna evaporate away. I've noticed that with music, then like it's fucking really annoying that every single new album I get on something like Apple Music or Spotify is available. But then you you start to get into the older stuff where, you know, rights are spread over lots of sources. And you're like, well, I've got a Neil Young album that's got three tracks that I can listen to on it. Mm-hmm. Um, and the rest of it is kind of like, I don't know, spread out somewhere else. And then should, I'm going to have to dig the LP out, which is probably not the reason I got a streaming subscription, but there you go.
1: Yeah, it's it's very frustrating seeing that no one really knows how to do all these things because uh, the world has taken a sudden and drastic leap forward in terms in terms of technology and the old laws don't really apply or keep up so it's incredibly difficult to kind of work all that stuff up as uh, I was listening to an interview with the comedian Paul riser in the week who was talking about the fact that they're finally putting out the complete mad about you and how for years they couldn't put out the last two because of arcane issues with the street the music rights mm-hmm. and how it that it required him to sit in a room full of lawyers and just try and get them to sit down and talk to each other and took literally years and to wrangle, like here are all the music cues, here's how much it will cost to like pay for them or to replace them. And something so simple, uh, would just ended up being an immense, immense headache for him that finally got resolved. So you can see why those things don't get resolved by people who maybe don't see too much of a profit in it,
0: mm, yeah. which is a shame. Uh, I look forward to this streaming service becoming one of those things that I get a free free trial for and then forget to cancel um, <laughs> much like Mubi which you sent me a free trial for uh, so we could do that Paul Thomas Anderson episode and then I forgot all about and I've only ever watched that Paul Thomas Anderson film on it uh, which has now cost me 38 quid so you know must remember to cancel subscription <laughs> next time um, that's how they get you that is how they get you
1: Everyone has their Paul Thomas Anderson movie in the vault somewhere, just ready to lure unsuspecting people in.
0: Mm. Every Every day, I think, maybe I should watch something on movie because, I mean, don't get me wrong, there's some amazing films on there. Um, they're pretty much all amazing films, but mainly because if I watch it, then that Paul Thomas Anderson film then costs £19. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Then slowly yeah. I'll get my money's worth. It's yet to happen. I think probably probably can go through a whole year. Just feeling terrible at myself. Um, <laughs> what are we talking about this weekend?
1: We are talking about uh, sex as what? the beginning of our new trilogy of episodes Sex, Drugs, and Rock and Roll.
0: Mm, yes. For many, a touchy subject. Um, for us, I, I kind of can't believe we haven't kind of touched on it more.
1: Yeah, I think it's definitely one of those all encompassing subjects that we've, at, at various points, kind of hinted at or discussed briefly but never really found the co- the correct context to really talk about it so when we suddenly realized there was a, an inter- like three episodes we could do on three subjects that we've never really kind of delved into before uh, it seemed like the perfect time
0: mm. i did say to ed before we went on on kind of on air that uh, i was watching in the background while recording this episode a vintage Rolling Stones concert from 1972, uh, the Exile on Main Street tour. And uh, I could probably talk at length about this very performance in all three categories of sex, drugs and rock and roll, because <laughs> uh, they seem to have all of those bases covered quite extensively.
1: Yeah, it's a, I think you can say that about most bands, certainly most bands from the 60s, but the Stones, uh, you know, they are at the centre of that Venn diagram in a big way, to the extent that it's really just a circle with them.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, sex. Uh, I think we should probably start at the beginning and and a kind of a brief history of um, of sex in film, um, especially kind of sex's uh, sex and its complicated relationship with Hollywood, and it's pretty much been there all along, right back to the silent era and the kind of the the vamp archetype.
1: Yeah so in the early days of Hollywood censorship was very lenient it was a thing that existed uh, certainly on state levels you know films would get made in Hollywood and then they would go to state and city censors who would look at the stuff and say okay we can't have that we can't have this smut or this sinning or whatever they whatever their particular uh, objections were and so basically a film could get released in all 50 states, Uh, well, actually, no, not all 50 states because there weren't 50 at the time, but, you know, they could get released all over the country and all over the world, but everywhere would get a slightly different version depending on who the censor was. Mm-hmm. But there wasn't a kind of a strict censorship code in Hollywood, or at least there wasn't one that had real kind of impact. You know, uh, studio heads could come in or producers could come in and say, no, you can't do this, but, you know, you can do that or whatever, but it was very much... A lot more permissive than it would become in kind of Hollywood's golden era so there were lots of films that had uh, nudity certainly if you look at things like the the gold diggers series of uh, musicals there's lots of very brief nudity throughout all of those films uh, Cesar B. DeMille uh, as we've discussed before would often include kind of sex and nudity in his biblical epics because he would say oh this is just an adaptation of a particularly lascivious bit in the bible uh, mm-hmm. which was incredibly hypocritical but incredibly clever of him to uh, work his way around the censorship that way uh, and mm. then in the 1930s there were a lot of very public scandals most not- notably the Fatih Arbuckle scandal uh, which drew a lot of negative attention towards Hollywood even though in, in that instance it was a case of a, a man who did nothing wrong being kind of horribly railroaded and his career being destroyed is a very tragic thing that people can listen to in an episode of uh, You Must Remember This, which also provided a lot of the background information for this uh, episode. So thanks to Karina Car- Car- Longworth for doing that show. Um, but yeah, the, the production Code or the Hayes Code came in, which introduced a lot more stringent things. And you get like the Catholic, Catholic League of Decency saying they're going to boycott films and the sex and the nudity don't disappear because sex was kind of the driving force behind most storytelling really certainly in the t- terms of like romance and even like action adventure where you would have a love interest but it became more kind of became supplemented and became subtext as opposed to what it had been before which was very much text
0: mm. yeah and um the kind of restrictions of uh, the production code were kind of quite ridiculous in places weren't they like if you, like there's a, the famous one which everyone remembers is is if you had two people sat on a bed together, they had to have one it, one foot on the floor, each of them had to have one foot on the floor, which is kind of ridiculous, and is also one of the the staple rules from snooker. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean like things like that were very kind of strictly enforced, and I mean it spread to other other areas as well, like violence. You know, villains couldn't ever be seen to get away with their kind of crimes or whatever they always had to get a comeuppance of some sort which is interesting if you ever wanted to kind of study this in any depth is to watch the film angels with dirty faces because mm. the film the film that ending is very ambiguous um and you're not sure whether that person is getting a comeuppance or they're doing it for for ulterior motives but i mean uh kind of sex was then like you say kind of driven into subtext and it kind of was very artfully done in a lot of cases. You watch The the Big Sleep, for example, and watch Bogie and Bacall talking about horses. Mm-hmm. Um, but then in other times, it perhaps wasn't very artfully done. <laughs> like uh, North by Northwest, with the train going through the tunnel at suggestive moments, uh, is a little on the nose, should we say.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's, there's a there's a kind of a great big discussion to be had about censorship and restrictions on artists and whether or not they are inherently bad or they're an absolute evil or if they can sometimes produce great great things um i i personally are of the the i am of the opinion that uh, a little bit of restriction does help i think it certainly is why the golden aid of hollywood begins a few years after the production code because i think some directors probably were not able to work because they couldn't work within the restrictions but some of the really creative ones hitchcock being one of them uh, less so in the north by northwest situation although there, there it's kind of more of a there he's just kind of being very kind of knowing and arch about it all mm-hmm. um but certainly someone like Ernst Lubitsch who was one of the more kind of uh suggestive and sexual of the pre-code directors uh, making all these comedies were that were very pretty very open about kind of sexuality and uh, what was driving the plot lines and then in the after the code he becomes someone who's very good at kind of uh, hinting at sex without having to kind of out and out say it and his he was someone who was able to kind of bridge the divide very nicely or someone like stanley Donan who directed the film pillow talk which very cleverly got behind got got around the restriction on not being able to show a couple in bed by having doris day and rock hudson talk to each other on phones in separate rooms on a split screen and then cutting to them both lying in their respective beds to make it seem like they were sleeping in the same bed together mm. so it produced i think a lot of really great and intelligent work uh because all of these incredibly creative artists had to really kind of work hard to get around all of the restrictions in whatever way that they could
0: mm. Um, Douglas Sirk is another one. Uh, he's yes. kind of well worth talking about. He kind of made these kind of sumptuous melodramas uh, all about kind of repression and kind of unbridled passion that kind of uh, was uh, kind of buried deeply beneath the surface and uh, would would work it in kind of very artfully. But yeah, it's it's kind of interesting to note that kind of pre code such a good deal of the smut in uh, pre code Hollywood could be pretty much laid at uh, Howard Hughes' door. Uh, he was a big driving force behind a lot of the kind of changing attitudes to sex on screen, you know, mainly kind of through kind of knowing what good business was. you know what I mean? He would uh, cause a sensation with something kind of fairly scandalous and reap the rewards, like he did with with Jane Russell in something like The Outlaw by kind of designing her a kind of preposterous bra that she had to wear um, to kind of make the most of uh, ample cleavage um, and get away with, you know, make a blockbuster film out of it
1: yeah and he was also someone who was very good at he was someone who understood from a very early stage the business potential of controversy Mm -hmm. Uh, i think that was something that drove his work and whether it was you know trying to be as kind of sexually daring as he could be in his films or just from you know plowing the equivalent of hundreds of millions of dollars into a film that he would shoot entirely silent but then the silent era ended so he reshot the whole thing with sound and just being a this larger than life figure who attracted all of this attention and uh, in the end kind of justified it all by producing films that made a lot of money so mm. he was uh, on one level kind of a very shrewd businessman and on the other level kind of a uh kind of like a slightly higher rent like uh roger corman or russ meyer
0: mm. Yeah yeah. When did the Haze Code uh sorry the production code well the Hayes Code and the Production Code are the same thing, right?
1: Uh pretty much, yeah. there's there it's an interchangeable name for each other.
0: When did uh the code cease?
1: I don't think there's a specific date when it ended, but there are kind of a there there was kind of a gradual loosening of it throughout the fifties and sixties, to the extent that by the end of the sixties you get stuff like obviously something like Easy Rider would never have received a wide cinematic release in the days when the code was being widely enforced either because no studio would fund it or because no cinema would agree to uh, to show it for fear of being picketed and boycotted Mm -hmm. so it's kind of a kind of a nebulous period in the kind of the 50s and 60s when people like Hitchcock like Otto Preminger would who uh, really didn't like the code uh, on a kind of a fundamental level would try and push against it as much as possible such as in Psycho when Hitchcock uh, dared to show a toilet on screen which mm-hmm. had not been done due to the uh, one of the restrictions of the code uh, or uh, Preminger in Anatomy of a Murder having people repeatedly say the word panties which mm-hmm. was another one of those words that was deemed too suggestive and was a big deal at the time which now seems uh, hopelessly quaint.
0: Yeah, yeah. So what were the films that kind of pushed the code to its limits, kind of during those years. Uh, I mean, I can certainly kind of... Oh, it always uh, never fails to surprise me how on edge The Apartment is, for example. I mean, mm. that film was made in 1959, I think, and released in uh, 1960. But that film is is uh, very out there in terms of its sexual politics.
1: Yeah, de- Billy Wilder is definitely a key figure in that sort of things, uh, and particularly like a few years later when he would do... Something like uh one two three, which is a kind of a, a farce about the Cold War but also is very kind of open about the kind of the silliness of its sexuality and the sexual politics of the people involved, or uh, something like Kiss me Stupid, which was kind of a sex farce with uh, I believe Dean Martin and uh that was very much a film that was pretty controversial at the time because even though like obviously you couldn't depict sex, sex was very central to that story, and there was kind of a Lot of partner swapping in that sort in that film, and people pursuing each other's partners and everything. So he was someone who definitely seemed to relish in pushing against and tearing down the the code wherever he could.
0: Mm. And I guess that the the kind of attitudes to sex on screen follow very closely in step with the attitudes of society. And kind of you know, seven years after the apartment seems. Uh, on the nose with, with what it's saying you've got something like The Graduate um, mm. which is, is just right out there
1: yeah definitely the the, the growing per- permissiveness in society in general and particularly within kind of the Hollywood community as the, the, the decade wears on as people open their minds to different experiences mainly through drugs but also just mm. through different ways of thinking certainly kind of begins to affect the the, the work being produced in a major
0: way Mm. And it's odd because like obviously nothing changed about Hollywood because mm. uh, you know Hollywood has a long uh, starried history of sexual decency and uh, and uh, kind of um, decadence that like just wasn't reflected uh, explicitly on screen
1: and even and you even see some kind of figures reemerging uh, and becoming kind of huge deals in the new Hollywood era who were part of that more. Uh, restrained era, someone like a Warren Beatty, who you know would be in something like Elia Kazan's Splendor in the Grass, which is a very restrained film when it comes to its depiction of sexuality. Uh, and then, you know, when he became a huge star, he was behind Hairspray, which is a film entirely about his character having sex with lots of women.
0: Mm, yeah, and yeah, not too dissimilar from Warren Beatty's kind of principal, uh, kind of uh, off screen persona, is it?
1: Yeah, his his main hobby.
0: Yeah, he's yeah. That, there's that kind of uh, joke, isn't there? That like, you know, every leading man in Hollywood is gay, but they're pretty sure Warren Beatty's straight, <laughs> which is <laughs> pretty much accurate. Yeah. So in terms of like kind of uh, pushing the boundaries, that kind of new Hollywood era uh, opened it right up, didn't it? But then, when did it move into the mainstream? Uh, was it the Graduate and things like that that kind of, and then uh, subsequently Carnal Knowledge? Basically, did Mike Nichols is Mike Nichols responsible for filth?
1: Uh, I think he probably has a big, big role in it. Certainly, The Graduate was a era defining film. It was a massive commercial success, and a lot of people saw it. And certainly, his subsequent films, uh, you definitely see him pushing the boundaries of sex in Carnal Knowledge uh, to an extent. I guess in Catch twenty two because there's uh a lot of male nudity in that film, particularly from Alan Arkin. Um I don't know if there's full frontal male nudity, but there's certainly you certainly see his ass quite a fair bit when he's being given a medal and Orson welles doesn't know where to pin it. Um <laughs> but yeah that that it definitely becomes very very mainstream and then you get things like uh in coming home where there's a very strong focus on Jane Jane Vonday uh, her orgasm as she's being given yeah, oral sex by I think John Voight's character it's been a while since I've seen that film but that mm. is definitely kind of a big that's only a few years after that and that is the sort of thing that uh, you absolutely wouldn't have had you know just like 10 years earlier
0: mm. yeah, yeah and then at what point does it become kind of anything goes i mean what i'm trying to get at here is you know we're kind of two decades into the 21st century, and it kind of feels like uh, there's no real taboos anymore. Unless, you know, someone's going to fuck a horse live in <laughs> the film, which, you know, even if it happened, I don't mean people would be that interested.
1: Uh, except in that documentary Zoo.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: But yeah, I think it, it's definitely by the 90s. It's, it's pretty much as mainstream as it gets. And I think that the 90s is probably the last time where... The idea of kind of big movie stars having sex on screen was exciting because you have a whole string of erotic thrillers or or films where the effect of sex is is kind of a huge part of it. You have something like indecent proposal where that is obviously a big part of it, but also basic instinct fatal attraction. These are all kind of films where that where you take something that had been essentially confined to video stores. For a long time, to the the uh, pornographic market, the softcore market suddenly becomes uh, something that is is practiced by mainstream filmmakers in a very glossy way. Mm. Uh, and after that, and certainly in the last kind of couple of decades, possibly because of the kind of the growth of internet porn, it's become something that's less interesting to mainstream audiences. To you know, the idea of seeing more uh, restrained sexuality. On screen is less enticing when you can see kind of a a world of absolute horrors online.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. um I mean, I, mean, I, assume, kind of, I assume so. Well,
1: <laughs> it kind of gets to the thing that burt Reynolds talks about in Boogie Nights. You know, the whole idea that when the '80s comes along and people shoot porn like really cheaply on video, people don't care about story anymore. That is kind of that's kind of the same thing that happened. Uh, in the 90s as you go from films that are kind of constructed in a way where the sex is, is kind of the main marketing point but you still essentially have a story to uh, the idea of sex in a film being incredibly kind of staid and boring except in instances where you get something like a lust caution or a nine songs where you have it you know unsimulated sex or allegedly unsimulated sex in uh in lust caution i don't know if that's ever been confirmed but you know stuff that would get a film like an nc-17 rating and you get a bit of buzz building up around the uh, fight to get a lower rating for depicting sex
0: mm. i think the answer to all this lies in um team america doesn't it um, <laughs> as because, most things do yeah they famously tried to push the very limits of what was acceptable to see on screen sex-wise between puppets so not even real people And apparently the uh, MPAA draws the line at defecation. Because even though they're puppets, that is still unacceptable. Yeah, although I think in
1: that case, uh, they have basically said that they only included the defecation part of that sex scene because they wanted to put a bunch of stuff in there that they knew wouldn't pass so that they could cut it and say that they were making concessions and be allowed to include the stuff that they wanted to include.
0: Hmm, those cheeky scoundrels, they'll always find a way around it, won't they?
1: Yeah, they. at this point they are kind of dab hands when it comes to working around restrictive censorship, censorship laws, uh, until the point at which the censors just kind of give them and let them say shit 200 times in a single episode, whatever it was, in that, um, that one episode of South Park.
0: Mm-hmm. What do you think makes for bad sex on screen? Uh, we see a lot of it. Is it, I mean, my contention is that it's uh, no chemistry. Um, you can't mm-hmm. kind of fake it, I guess, no matter how many times, no no matter how much flesh you're going to show. And kind of uh, the example that I've got is uh, kind of involves the same actress. There is literally no chemistry between Jennifer Lopez and Ben Affleck in the film Gigli. Uh, yes. Despite the fact that in real life uh, they were boning each other <laughs> uh, and together but in you know wind back the clock 10 years and there is uh kind of like a nuclear amount of chemistry between the same actress and george clooney um even though uh they weren't boning each other they probably were it's george clooney he's a filthy otter <laughs> so yeah i mean it's it you know the idea is that like we bought into the chemistry and it was sexy rather than Uh, It was kind of flat, boring and interesting.
1: Yeah, I mean, the interesting thing as well with Out of Sight is the scene that is really, you know, very sexy between the two of them where they're stuck in that boot together. They aren't actually having sex, Mm. whereas in G. Lee they are. And it's just not even remotely convincing or enticing in any way. I think think one of the things, yeah, is a lack of chemistry between the actors, which is death to any film. It's not strictly to do with sex. I think one of the things that makes for it very bad is what makes it very bad is if a sex scene is included because it's considered to be a generic convention or because it's just put in there because you feel like it has to be in there. I think like the really good ones have a plot and character drive behind them. I think you can definitely see that in the, the out of sight, not sex scene, but you know, close enough Mm -hmm. or a film that uh, you and I both uh, were very kind of taken with a few years ago blue is the warmest color mm. which has kind of a very long sex scene in it 20 minute something long sex scene in it where the whole point of it is to kind of uh depict how truly into each other the two characters are and how kind of uh overwhelmed with kind of lust for each other they are at that point in their relationship and similarly uh another blue film blue valentine there is a kind of a very Notable sex scene in that between Ryan Gosling and Michelle Williams. Notable because it got them an NC double an NC seventeen, not NCAA. That's something
0: else. That's a battery.
1: Uh, Yeah, it got Mm. uh, it got the NC seventeen rating for uh, for for Rosling performing Rosling. That's his new name now. For (laughs) Argos Argos for for Gosling performing oral sex on uh, Williams, where the whole point of that sex scene again is to show how passionate they were at a very early state in their relationship compared to just how much they hate each other at the kind of the, the modern day points of their relationship. Uh, and those ones you can say, okay, that clearly has a purpose within the story. It's not just there to titillate.
0: Mm. Yeah. So in terms of like what makes sex bad on screen, we've had a bit of fun, haven't we, talking about the worst sex scenes in film, what have you chosen to be uh, the the Nadir of the uh, of the uh, of the sex scene on on tellyloid?
1: Uh, I went for the sex scene towards the end of the Steven Spielberg film Munich.
0: Oh fuck, man, that's like a cold bucket of water in the face, isn't it? Yeah, because that, uh, that film's really good up until that point.
1: It is. It's really good, and then suddenly there's this incredibly overwrought, mishandled sex scene which. Uh, plays out with there's just lots of cross cutting between scenes of violence, and you can see what he's going for the the fact that this man's the you know the things that he's done in the name of his country have infected his life to even the most inst- intimate moment with his wife, but it just comes off as a really kind of over the top melodramatic moment in a film that is otherwise very restrained and even handed. It's in it's the way it talks about violence and the reason behind this violence and you know, questions whether or not the actions that his character took were at any point right.
0: Mm, yeah, it's very, very jarring. And uh yeah, kind of really does take the shine off what could have been a pretty amazing film.
1: Yeah, that is, because that's a film that I often think of very fondly. And then I always kind of remember that. It's like, yeah, that was just incredibly awkward to watch in the cinema because everyone involved, everyone in the cinema, when I saw it was clearly... Very moved by it, and then you get to that, and everyone started kind of tittering a little bit because it just clearly was a misjudged choice on Spielberg's part.
0: Mm, my, um, I mean, it's probably harsh to call it the worst, but it's definitely my least favorite. Is the sex scene in the Terminator? Yes, um, because uh, the Terminator, as we kind of often talk about on this show, is is a incredibly economical uh, thriller about a relentless chase. Um, between, you know, a uh, hunter and its quarry uh, that never lets up and it just doesn't let go ever. But then, uh, obviously, Sarah Connor has to have John Connor. But weirdly, Kyle Reese has to impregnate her, which, again, kind of hurts your head if you think about it too much. But we, ha- you know, we have to see it. And it being the 80s, it is done in the worst uh, softcore late night sky movie style and it is (laughs) awful and every time i see the film uh, i forget that it's in there because i block it out and then as soon as i see it i'm like oh god what is this
1: that is i think a really good example of like i was saying before where a sex scene kind of feels like it's just included because that's what you expect from the genre because even though the terminator ended up spawning this hugely successful huge sci-fi series which subsequently has been pretty much completely sexless Mm -hmm. uh, which is interesting in itself it started as a very low budget exploitation film similar to the sort of thing that Cameron's kind of uh, mentor Roger Corman was making so it kind of feels like okay we're making this cheap low budget sci-fi film starring a guy who can barely speak English we need to include a sex scene at some point because it's what people will expect and even though he comes up with a uh, justification for it within the plot, which actually is kind of more than you'd usually expect. It still ends up being being kind of disultory and not particularly like anyone involved is enjoying it all that much.
0: Mm. Yeah, at least for the audience. Mm. Um, One,
1: uh, a theory I have, I'm trying to think of why so many of the sex scenes aren't particularly good. I wonder how much of it is to do with the fact that it's probably the one part of filmmaking that directors get really uncomfortable about actually directing people to do. Mm. Because I feel like if you're directing a sex scene, you have to kind of reveal uh, something about your own kind of peccadillos. And most directors, you know, they want to be controlling and they probably don't, they're not in front of the camera because they don't want to reveal much about themselves. And so that's why they just end up falling on very kind of generic shooting styles and actions uh, Mm. and why someone like russ meyer made films that had a lot of very fun sex scenes because he was very shameless about what he was into
0: yeah that guy was as perverse as a pink pickle that guy but yeah i mean what i mean your case study there could be something like eyes wide shut Mm. um a film in which uh kubrick who's a a kind of notoriously cold fish shall we say um has the you know Hollywood power couple at his disposal, and you know, his, uh, he was notoriously controlling to the degree that that film took what like a year to film.
1: Yeah, something like a year, year and a half, uh, a a uh relationship destroying length of time.
0: Yes, yeah. I mean, he just needed a nudge. Let's be honest. But I mean, I mean, the sex in that is 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 kind of very cold and mm. uh, and kind of off putting. There's there's nothing particularly. Well, I mean, it's it's what I would expect of a sex film directed by Stanley Kubrick to be like
1: yeah and uh, I think there it kind of uh it kind of fits the tone that he's going for in the story that he's telling but yeah that is it's very much a situation where if that film was meant to be warm or meant to be sexy you could look at that and say yeah this is clearly just what sex with Stanley Kubrick was like
0: mm. <laughs> yeah yeah, which is is not a burning desire I want to to kind of see <laughs> resolved, if I'm honest. But yeah, I mean, I don't really, I I, I kind of perhaps don't think that directors find um, sex scenes as awkward as as you might think. I mean, the way that sex scenes are generally shot um, with kind of closed sets and like minimal crews and stuff, and the fact that any scene on any film of doing anything is so false and so fake. Mm. that i I think there's probably less uh intrusiveness and and than there is i mean I suppose the the real only way to figure it out is to do a rigorous scientific study using Hollywood's biggest deviant directors,
1: yeah, who would be on that list? Do you think of the current Zack Snyder probably
0: i mean based that, on sucker punch yeah, I mean essentially if his kind of sexual proclivities include just noise and upskirt um <laughs> then <laughs> Then yeah, and kind of uh, very sexualized, borderline jail bait girls running around in their pants with machine guns, because he thinks that's what female empowerment is.
1: Yeah, I think he he would certainly be very high on the call sheet if you were to make that uh, that study.
0: Yeah, I think I mean, is it fair to say? I mean, I know that neither of us are Sucker Punch or Zack Snyder fans, but is Sucker Punch the rapiest film ever made? <laughs>
1: uh it's certainly the most implied rapiest film ever made
0: Mm, always kind of like the the entire film's atmosphere is kind of thick with kind of implied almost imminent sexual assault in every scene
1: yeah it definitely has a feel to it that is uh yeah even thinking about it now i just feel very skeeved out by the whole thing Mm. and just watching for the first time it's like something horrible is going to happen at any moment i just know it and well the fact that the uh Empowering fantasies comes from the main character doing a sexually provocative dance for men. Probably probably says it a lot really about the sexual politics of that
0: film. Mm. It was just like he was like, "Well, we're going to have an empowerment fantasy with uh, a girl fighting samurais," and they're like, "Oh, yeah, cool, man." They're like, "Yeah, well, that's not the girls are dressed like schoolgirls, and I'll shoot them all from low angles, and they're not just samurais; they're kind of giant samurais." And they're okay, right? That might be. A little troubling. And he's like, right, okay, one more thing. They've got dick noses.
1: <laughs> I've forgotten about the dick
0: noses. The dick nose samurais. <laughs> and the way that that is shot, is just like, it's so fucking creepy. It's so creepy. Like, oh, that guy. How does he get away with it?
1: I don't know. Dick Nose samurais a good band name as well. This episode, I think, has been rich with them.
0: Yeah. What kind of music would that be?
1: I think it'd be kind of... Some kind of post-punk. Uh, I think it would be M.O.R. Grindcore. Mm. So, like, when Grindcore has become mainstream and boring, that's what Digno Samurai would
0: make. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I like that. I like that. So we've kind of plumbed the depths of uh, of Sex on Screen. Who did it the best and, uh, and kind of, you know, what makes a good sex scene? Is it purely just a connection and chemistry you just captured in a subtle, uh, unexploitative way?
1: Yeah, I think that is kind of a big part of it. I think it has to be rooted in the in the characters in the same way that good action sequences or good comedy comes from having characters that you can identify with and that you genuinely like I think that's half the battle is making people care about the characters because if you don't care about the characters then you might as well just be watching porn
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know that's kind of the main thing that is important is that you care about them and think that they have some sort of chemistry together mm-hmm. um, and then you know anything beyond that is is just down to kind of technique and and where the where the sex scene falls in the story if it has a purpose if it says something about the characters if it's revealing in any way i think a good example of that would be like the two sex scenes in a history of violence Mm -hmm. where the two are very different the first one is kind of very playful and is you know about a married couple kind of role playing and just kind of trying to spice things up and the other one comes like later in the film and it's kind of very sudden it's very jarring and it's very kind of raw and you can definitely see that the characters are in very different places mentally and in terms of the story and what's happened in their lives between the two i think that's a really good example it's a really good film in general we've talked about history of violence a lot in the past and about what a great film it is but i think that's a really good example of how you can use sex to tell a story and how you can use it to inform characters in a in a way that is not just kind of, uh, kind of titillating, enticing for an audience, but genuinely has some sort of impact.
0: Mm. I think the the, the always uh, the gold standard of sex scenes for me will always be "Don't Look Now," mm. um, and you know we talk about kind of the the, the characters and, and kind of uh, uh, how you know those scenes can kind of express something that the whole film is about. Uh, you know, a couple. Coming to terms with the loss of their their child, and and they kind of move to Venice, and I mean that film is so rich with imagery of death and decay and everything. And there's just a beautifully tender moment where there is a suggestion uh, after this kind of sex scene, there is a suggestion that they uh, may well have created a new life, mm.
1: uh,
0: and that she might well be pregnant. Um, and there kind of is this rebirth going on, only to be ruined ruined <laughs> by a kind of like midget in a red coat. Um. <laughs> But, you mean, that is what I think of uh, when I think of, like, a good sex scene. Um, Not my favourite. My favourite sex scene is obviously from Wet Hot American Summer and uh, (laughs) between Bradley Cooper and Michael Ian Black because that comes from nowhere. (laughs) That is fucking hilarious.
1: And also remarkably tender.
0: Yes, absolutely. Because, like, (laughs) I, I was like, okay, it's funny. These guys are obviously into each other. And then it was like, hey, do you want to come to the shed and help me with this thing? And they're banging. And I was just like that is hilarious and it's just so funny and the way it's done and the fact that bradley cooper is who bradley cooper is now (laughs) makes it even funnier Uh,
1: as does the callback to it in the later (laughs) in the film where a they are shown having getting married next to a lake Mm. and also when um like they are confronted by the rest of the counselors and you think it's going to be some kind of uh, homophobic kind of backlash. And then it turns out that they've just bought them a fridge or something. They mm. <laughs> they bought them, they bought them a big present to celebrate their getting together. Um, I think, I do think that the sex scene in Brokeback Mountain is genuinely great between mm. uh, uh, Heath Ledger and Jake Gyllenhaal. I think that is one that again is, is rooted in character and I think gets to the heart of what their, their relationship is about the secretiveness of it all. And that they, what society what what their relationship means to society at that time, uh, and the fact they can only really be themselves when they're completely separated out from the rest of the world.
0: Hmm. Mm, absolutely. So, we've kind of run the gamut of sex this week, and uh, you know we've turned the air blue uh, with the, with the kind of uh, this filth. Um, so let's move on to recommendations. What have we got this week, Ed?
1: I'm going to recommend a web series which. Uh, I should—I've only just recently discovered, but I should have discovered earlier because it's by one of my very favourite people on the internet, John Boyce, who people may know best as a writer for SB Nation, where he created a series called Breaking Madden, which uh, is very close to my heart. Uh, and he also did a series called The Death of Basketball, well, not which series, is an article,
0: which, which is amazing. With the yeah, yeah, the the—is it a three-part or is it just the one? Because I've only seen the last bit of it.
1: Uh, I'm pretty sure it's just a one-part where he just describes. Uh, basically, his his for people who don't know, Breaking Madden and this this uh, basketball thing were situations where he would take the cr- player creating models in uh, Madden and also in NBA Y two K NBA two K uh, fourteen I think and he would create insane scenarios and in the death of basketball he basically creates the absolute worst NBA players and sees how long it takes for basketball to become unwatchable. Uh, and it's incredibly funny but he's he uh he created a a series called pretty good which is essentially a series of short documentaries that he does about stories that he finds particularly interesting and i discovered his most recent one which is about uh the tv show 24 and it's all about essentially uh investigating the ways in which 24 was both a hugely entertaining show and also reflective of paranoid right-wing fantasies, how it became a favourite show of people who had a terrifying amount of power in the US government at the time, and also just exploring the ways in which 24, the show itself, became kind of a purgatory for Jack Bauer, in which everyone he knowed and loved either died, was horribly maimed, or both at different points in the show. And it's incredibly funny, it's an incredibly insightful and it's just a, a wonderful kind of half hour of cultural criticism, which shows a great knowledge of the show, but also of just kind of American culture over the last decade and a half or so. Uh, and it's it's really great. And the other installments are also really good, but uh, that one was the one that really kind of floored me.
0: Mm, yeah. Um, I, you're definitely kind of plus one on the recommendation of the the death of basketball thing to watch mm. him kind of insert decades of... Uh, players with zero stats into the draft um, and watching how long it takes for the uh, real-life players to retire and then to reach the end point of like in 2046 or something with uh, the NBA final decided after 12 overtimes ending 2-0. It's brilliant. And the videos that go along with it are great of like, you know, of all the fun that can be had with that. Uh, I'm going to recommend this week because it was International Tabletop Day. Uh, yesterday as we as we record this Uh, and as regular listeners might know I'm kind of kind of into board games and I've recently acquired a board game which is fucking brilliant called Dead of Winter which is kind of people are kind of sick of zombie things now and in games it's no different there's an awful lot of bad zombie games about but Dead of Winter is different because it basically forces players together to live uh, in a colony but a colony which has got lots of zombies outside and you spend The whole game, just trying to survive and trying to gather enough food and forage things. And, um, you know, there's no kind of ridiculous chainsaw wielding or anything like that. But then what makes the game fun is the group has an objective, which is to like survive a certain amount of time. And, you know, that's pretty straightforward. But everyone else has their own secret objective, which they're all trying to complete without telling anyone else. And what makes it very interesting is there's a fair chance that one of the characters, one of the people playing... Uh, has got a traitor objective. He is deliberately trying to ruin everyone's life. And it makes for incredible kind of social interactions on a gaming level because you will find yourself voting to exile one of your fellow players into the snow and near certain death at the hands <laughs> of an undead legion quicker than you can say Dawn of the Dead because it happened so quickly with us that like, and there was one bit where one of the players in our group slightly misunderstood a rule. And we were like, this guy's fucking sketchy, man. That's <laughs> you, you kind of vote with a kind of thumbs up and thumbs down system. So we just all, all immediately kind of voted to exile this guy who had just misunderstood a rule about something. And he was out there, man. He was out there dying in the snow whilst we were. And then we you find out immediately if they were, they were the traitor and we played for hours and hours and hours all this mistrust all this kind of like did you put food in the in the contribution pile because I'm pretty sure I put some in and someone put a spanner in there instead of food and it, it's just basically the thing as a board game, <laughs> just paranoia and endless kind of uh, and we've been, we played it on kind of uh, on Saturday night when in, in England, there's just been snow and just awfulness like in the weather. And it was just been like the most super paranoid evening of my life where actually no one turned out to be the traitor, but we all turned on each other so quickly. Um, so it's a game that really kind of brings all your paranoia and prejudice to the floor.
1: Yeah, that sounds brilliant and also like a game I would lose within five minutes.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm really terrible at uh, like hidden identity games. I'm really bad at revealing them, so so much so that I overplay my hand deliberately to make people think that it is me, and then they're like, yeah, it's you. <laughs> See you later. <laughs> but yeah, that's what I'd recommend, Dead of Winter. It's fantastic. That is your lot, everyone, on the subject of sex. Uh, Thanks as always for listening. Uh, If you've enjoyed the show, please subscribe to us on iTunes, uh, Stitcher, or Player FM. And if you've really enjoyed the show, leave us a little review because it helps people find us and helps us reach a kind of new audience um, you can find us on Twitter at SRS underscore podcast and on Facebook too uh, and also at our new website address which I will remind everyone is SRSPodcast.com uh, we'll be back next week with the second instalment of this series uh, when we'll be talking about drugs and uh, to get into the spirit we'll all be kind of huffing glue to, to <laughs> kind of make it authentic but until then it's goodbye from me and goodbye from me and goodbye from me